0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I was reminded a couple weeks ago uh, that there's an adage in show business that you should never share the stage with animals or with kids. Because they'll just steal the show from you. And I don't know if that applies to preaching or not, but assuming it does, then, then I'm violating that today, so uh, we'll see how it goes. But I am grateful uh, for the work, all the work that has gone on to make this morning possible. I'm grateful for the work of Kim and so many others, the people that are back here, <laughs> have been back here all morning directing traffic and all of that, uh, to make all of this happen uh, that, that you all have gotten to see this morning. And beyond that, I'm grateful for all the work that goes on around here, uh, especially in the North Hall, uh, for the sake of our kids. Uh, We have so many people around this church who love our kids, whether they're their own kids or not, and desire for those kids to grow up to know the Lord. And I just want to take the time to say how grateful I am uh, for all those people who put that work in week in and week out. As we continue to prepare ourselves for uh, the arrival of Jesus, we're going to be looking today at the ministry of John the Baptist. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist's birth and the song that his father Zacharias sings when he is born. And we saw that there wasn't a whole lot of focus on John himself when he's born. There's a lot of focus on who God is and what God is doing throughout the birth of John and the one who will come after John. And so what we're going to do uh, this morning is to jump ahead in in the life of John the Baptist to Luke chapter 3 and look at uh, how God does work through John, what all goes on within his ministry that God called him to do, how he fulfills that, and the message that he preaches to God's people as he prepares the way for the arrival of Jesus. Uh, But before we jump into that, I want to try to read us uh, a story to get us ready for the passage of Scripture we'll be looking at uh, this morning. I bought a new uh, Bible a couple weeks ago uh, that is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it is designed as a, a storybook for kids, to be able to read stories of Scripture and see how across the entire story of the Bible, God is pointing us towards Jesus, so if you, I, I give that as a little plug. If you've got young kids or grandkids and are looking for uh, something to read with them before bed or something like that, it is a really good uh, resource to sit down. They're short stories uh, to read with kids. It's got great illustrations, so that's my little plug for that. But since we are being led in worship by our kids today, I thought it might be fitting to read how the Jesus Storybook Bible tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, It begins by telling us about his birth uh, that we looked at last week, the song that Zacharias sings when John the Baptist is born, and then it continues, it says, So John grew up, and, well, to tell you the truth, he was a bit unusual. He lived in the desert. He he wore itchy, scratchy outfits made of camel hair. He had a big, big bushy beard and, and long, long, scraggly hair. And here's the oddest thing of all. He only ate locusts, which are big creepy, crunchy grasshoppers, which he dipped in honey to disguise the taste, probably. But God sent John to tell his people something important. Stop running away from God and run to him instead, John said. You need to be rescued, and I have good news. The rescuer is coming. Make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. Great crowds listened to John. They were sorry they had sinned and they, they wanted to stop running away from God. They wanted to be rescued. And so John baptized them, which means he plunged them in and out of the water. And it showed that they wanted to follow God and begin a new life. Things are not as they should be. If you're here this morning, it's probably safe for me to assume that you probably agree with that statement. A good portion of you are believers in the gospel of Jesus, and one component of that gospel is that we, human beings, are sinful. And our sin uh, does damage to ourselves, it does damage to those who are closest to us, it does damage to creation itself. Things are not as they should be. Bodies deteriorate. We wake up with aches and pains. We make bad decisions that impact ourselves and those around us. We have natural disasters. We have global pandemics. Even if you're not a believer of Jesus, you aren't so sure about a word like sin, you're probably aware that at at minimum things are maybe not as good as they could be. You'd like to see things improve, whether that's in your own life, in in your own home, whether it's in society at large. Things are not as they should be. And if we could, we should take steps to make things better. In short, our world longs for transformation. Maybe we long to be healed from whatever it is that ails us, Maybe we long for the place where we work to be more accommodating. Maybe we long for our nation to function differently. But we often find ourselves longing for transformation. If you were to open up Amazon and go to the book section and just type in that word transformation and search, you would find all sorts of potential resources that promise transformation. In almost any area of life that you can imagine, you can find some book that will show you a way where that part of your life can be transformed. Now, I can't promise to be an expert or to look at every resource that's available on Amazon, but from what I have seen, there tends to be a pattern. You've recognized something is wrong, whether it's in your own life, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your family, and you buy what, if you just buy whatever this book is for this one specific area of your life, if you read it and you apply the principles of that book, you take their five-step plan, whatever it might be, it, it will all work out. You will find transformation Life will be better. You'll have more money. People will respect you more. All you have to do is follow these steps. Now, my goal this morning is not to take down the self-help publishing industry, but I do think that as we turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning, we see an answer for where transformation comes. It just doesn't come in the way that we would expect. It doesn't come in the way we typically hear. The message of John the Baptist tells us that transformation comes through repentance. Transformation does not begin with improving ourselves. It does not begin with following a pattern that someone lays out for us. It begins with repentance, humbling ourselves before God, and from that, finding transformation. Let's jump into our text this morning. I'll read Luke 3, verses 1 to 6. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. These verses set the context for us, both historically and biblically. Luke wants us to have the lay of the land. He begins his gospel by telling us he's investigated the, the background he's done, the study, the hard work of all the events that happened around Jesus so that he can give us an orderly account of what has occurred. And he, does, he shows that again here by summarizing for us the powers that are in place when John the Baptist begins his ministry. And based on what Luke tells us in those few verses, we can kind of narrow our time frame and know that we're speaking roughly in the realm of uh, the years 27 to 28 A.D. But as important as those details are, what is far more important is the biblical context Luke gives us when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is a passage that is essential for the gospel writers as they tell us about the ministry of John the Baptist and how John prepares the way for the arrival of Jesus. Isaiah 40 is written to God's people as they are in the midst of exile, as they are suffering, and God tells his people to get ready because a time is coming when God will send someone, and that one will come and will bring salvation. And when John the Baptist shows up and begins calling God's people to repent. He's fulfilling that text. He is the voice preparing the way for the arrival of God's salvation. And John calls God's people to turn around, to change their lives, and to demonstrate that repentance, that turning through being baptized. Which makes John a little strange. John was far from the first preacher or teacher in this time to command people to be baptized. But every other Jewish preacher around his time, if they would have required baptism, they would have required it for someone who was not ethnically Jewish and who wanted to become Jewish. It was for the outsiders to signify that they were becoming insiders. And John says that everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how long they've been walking with God, they need to be baptized to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah. And if that's true, it, 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 that the Messiah is on the way, it demonstrates something to us about the depth of the problem and the need for the solution. We get a glimpse at how John's preaching confronts that in the next few verses, verses 7 to 9. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. A little different message than kids singing Christmas carols, I guess, but you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. A few years ago, uh, my dad had some logging done on our family farm, and before the actual equipment to take the trees down was ever on the property, the the logger went through and marked trees, marked which ones were to be cut down, which ones were to be left, so that things could go more quickly once it actually came time. To do the logging. And John uses imagery that's somewhat similar in these verses to describe the situation of God's people at this time. He says, The axe is already at the root of the trees. I'm not from Minnesota, so I can translate and say, The root of the trees. And how did that not get more laughs than the jokes the kids were making? Come on. John says, The axe is at the root of the trees. The loggers sizing things up, deciding which trees should come down, which ones should remain. And that unless the trees want to be cut down and thrown into the fire, they should repent and bear fruit as a demonstration of their repentance. And he continues and says, this sort of repentance is for everyone. It's not a matter of pedigree, it's a matter of personal faithfulness. John tells the crowd not to waste his time telling him about their family line. There was an assumption among some, some listening to John, that God would take care of his people simply because of their ancestry, simply because they were God's people. It didn't matter what they did. God had to care for them. At the end of the day, all that matters, I was born into the right family. God has to take care of me. And John takes that thinking by the collar and does his best to try to shake some sense into it. Family heritage does not matter if it is not combined with a heart that recognizes who God is and desires to live in light of that reality. For those who assume they're fine with God because of who their parents are, because of some box they checked when they were kids, John calls them to the carpet. He demands that they deal with God as he is, not as they assume he might be. And this is a portion of the Gospels that, as we're reading, we might... Assume it's not for us, we can skip over it. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm probably better than this crowd that John's preaching to. If nothing else, I've never been in a crowd that has been called a brood of vipers. And this is all going on before Jesus. Technically, if we want to split hairs, we're at the very tail end of the Old Testament. So, you know, maybe we should just jump forward to when Jesus shows up. But just because, to my knowledge, there's no one in this building this morning who is claiming that they're fine with God purely because they can trace their ancestry back to Abraham, that does not mean that we don't need to deal with this text. We can default pretty easily into assuming that we don't need to repent. It's said that the last words of the German writer Heinrich Heine were, Of course God will forgive me. That's his job. We might not state it that bluntly, but we might default into thinking that way pretty easily. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I've never done anything all that bad with everything else. I mean, if you watch the news lately, there's worse people in the world. Everything else going on, God's not concerned about my sin. Of course he'll forgive me. That's his job. Of course he'll forgive me. I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. Of course he'll forgive me. I'm not really that bad. And to that sort of thinking, I think John the Baptist would say the same thing to us that he says in this passage. Repent. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God loves you. He loves us more than any one of us could ever be able to fully articulate. And that is absolutely true. And because that is true, repentance is necessary. God desires far more for us than we settle for. There's a place where C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And he continues and says, we are far too easily pleased. John's words in these verses can seem pretty dour, like he sees a bunch of people having fun and he doesn't like it, and so he's trying to put a stop to it. It might sound like, I saw all the fun going on with the kids' Christmas program and figured I'd get up here and, and kill the mood a little bit. That's not the case. John sees a people who have wandered from God and whose wandering is going to lead to their destruction If they don't do something about it. And he is begging them to return to the God who has promised them life with him if they will draw near. And this text has the same call for us today. This is not fire and brimstone for the sake of guilt, for the sake of trying to ruin a good time. This text calls us to God. It tells us to prepare because God is on the way in Christ and therefore we need to get ready. We need to repent. We need to humble ourselves. We need to realize that our hope rests in God and in God alone and then live in light of that reality. And when we do that, when we repent before him, we find transformation. Not through trying hard to transform ourselves, but through being transformed through God's arrival in Christ. But this sort of transformation is not something abstract. It's not just something that's only relevant on Sundays. As John is drawing a crowd with his ministry, he has the question posed to him about how to live out this sort of repentance, this sort of transformation in specific situations. And we might find ourselves wondering the same thing as we read this text today. I mean, repentance and transformation, it doesn't sound tangible. If I'm really going to do this, what does it look like in my home, at my workplace, at my school? The reality is that God calls us to repent before him. How do we do that? John answers that question in the last few verses of this passage. And I think it shows us a little bit about what true repentance looks like even today. Picking up in verse 10, reading down to verse 18. It says, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two Shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable Fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Our world most of the time creates a divide between the physical and the spiritual. The spiritual realm is where we deal with these terms like repentance and transformation. The physical realm is where we actually live our lives. The spiritual realm is for this building, it's for this day of the week. The the physical realm is where we have to cook dinner and drive our kids to practice and buy Christmas presents and all those things. Scripture does not assume that that divide is as clear as we would make it. For us, repentance can be kind of a weird abstract term that basically just means to feel guilty. Scripture tells us that repentance is tangible is demonstrated in how we act towards those around us. And that application begins with a general statement to the entire crowd and from John that everyone who has abundance should share with those who do not. Most people in the ancient world only had one change of clothes. Most people lived day to day hoping just for enough to get by. There's a reason why Jesus includes the request in the Lord's Prayer that God would give people their daily bread because that was not a guarantee so in that reality, John calls those who are responding to his message to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by caring for those around them who are in need. But he continues to get more specific, and we're told about the direction he gives to two specific occupations, tax collectors and soldiers. Now, if we were average people standing in the crowd listening to John the Baptist preach, we would probably have some pretty strong opinions about those two lines of work. Tax collectors work for the Roman Empire. They made their wealth by exploiting those that they collected taxes from. Essentially, if the Romans said that everyone had to pay a 10% tax, a tax collector could turn around to the people and say that the tax was 15% and keep that extra 5% for themselves. It was a job that could only be done well if you were exploiting your friends and family in the process. So if we're in the crowd listening to John, if you can picture that, and we see a tax collector come forward and be baptized by John, and then ask John, okay, now what do I do? We would probably have a long list of things that we think they should do. And at the top of that list would be, quit your job and find a decent line of work. Find something to do that's going to make the world a better place instead of a worse one. Stop getting rich off the backs of people who are your friends and your family. And that's not what John says. Instead, John tells a tax collector to repent where you are because where you are is where transformation begins. Instead of commanding them to quit their job, he tells them to do the job they have in a way that acts out their transformation. Instead of using their position to line their pockets at the expense of others, John calls them to do their job from a posture of repentance as a demonstration of the coming salvation of God. And he says something similar to the soldiers listening to him. In a territory like this, at this time, the main job of soldiers would be simply to keep the peace. Make sure no one's stirring up trouble. Do whatever you have to do to keep people in line, even if that meant using force against those who are vulnerable and can't defend themselves. But again, John doesn't say, you got to quit your job. He tells them to do their jobs with an eye towards service. Instead of looking for bribes and ways to extort people, they've been put in charge of, John calls for contentment. He calls for doing your job well to make sure that the vulnerable are not made more vulnerable as you carry out your duty. And those are two examples, but I think it's pretty easy to extrapolate out from there and see what repentance looks like. It looks like treating others well where we are right now. It is not just an internal thing. It is not just a spiritual thing that does not impact our day-to-day. It is a tangible thing that changes how we go about our lives and our work. Your work is something more than just something you do to get a paycheck so you can pay your bills. It is an opportunity to demonstrate to the world around you what repentance looks like. As we conduct our daily business with an eye towards service, to, an eye towards looking to the needs of others instead of our own as we live as members of the kingdom of God in the present. Now, obviously, there are some lines of work we could throw out hypo- hypothetically where it's basically impossible to glorify God. But I think this text shows us that an overwhelming majority of the time, the way to work out our repentance is by allowing the message of the gospel to invade every part of our existence. When we do that, we begin to work out transformation where God has us right here and right now. And that might not sound as glamorous and exciting as a book from Amazon might promise, but it is a series of small, tangible steps in our homes, in our workplaces, in our vehicles, where we demonstrate repentance taking place as we use what we have to ensure that those around us are cared for. And that is how we bring about transformation in ourselves and in the world around us. And when we do that, God's people give a preview of the future. The commands John gives in this passage might seem too small, but as he continues to explain that his entire ministry is preparing the way for someone who is to come after him, I think it helps us begin to get a sense for the real goal of John's teaching. Yes, what John says here might sound small, but imagine what it would look like if the number one concern of every single person you worked with was, how can I serve those around me? Imagine how different your day-to-day tasks would be. Imagine how different your place of work would look compared to every other place of work like it. Imagine how different our city would look if every single person approached their work with an eye towards service. I can't snap my fingers and make that a reality as much as I might like to. But what I can do is say that for each and every one of us, Wherever you go, when you leave this building today, you have the opportunity to go to, with an eye towards service, to offer the world around us a little glimpse of the kingdom of God, little moments of transformation as we participate in a life of repentance before him. Because ultimately, that is where John's ministry is headed. He's preparing people for Jesus. And because that's John's goal, I want to return as we close to the Jesus Storybook Bible and read its portrayal of the day where Jesus came to be baptized by John. It says, One day John was baptizing people in the Jordan River as usual, when he looked up and saw a man walking down to the water's edge. God spoke quietly to John, This is the one. John's heart leapt. This was the moment he'd been waiting for all his life. Look, John said, as Jesus came down into the water. But his voice came out as a whisper. He couldn't make it any louder. It was all he could do to even speak. The the Lamb of God, God's best Lamb, who takes away the sins of the whole world. Will you baptize me too, Jesus asked. Who am I, John asked, to baptize you? That's what God wants me to do, Jesus said. So John baptized Jesus. Suddenly, it was as if someone had drawn back curtains in a dark room, as if heaven itself had opened because a beautiful light broke through the clouds and shone down onto Jesus, bathing him in gold. Beads of water glittered and sparkled like tiny diamonds in his hair. A white dove flew down and gently rested on Jesus, and a voice came down from heaven. It was clear and strong and loud so everyone could hear, This is my own son, and I love him. I am very pleased with him, God said. Listen to him. Heaven had broken through. The great rescue had begun. Our repentance in the present brings transformation to the world around us. Jesus has come to transform us and invites us in to bring transformation to the world around us. Wherever God has you right now you have an opportunity to bring transformation there. So have a conversation in the car on the way home, if that's with a spouse, if that's with your kids, if that's with whoever it is that's in the car with you, about what transformation might look like where you are. If you rode by yourself this morning, have a conversation with someone before you leave about what that might look like. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you go this week, God is inviting you to repent so that you might find life with Him. And from that, you can be transformed and offer that transformation to others as well. Let's pray. Father, as strange as it might sound to our ears, we are grateful that you invite us to repent, that you invite us to not continue in our disobedience, that it will lead to our destruction. You invite us to come before you and humble ourselves so that we might find life with you. So God, because we believe that you are present everywhere always, that your Holy Spirit is with us even now, God, we ask that you would help us as we think through this text, that you would meet us where we are no matter where we might be, that we might listen to you as you speak to us, that we might know how you are inviting us into a deeper relationship with you, whether that's a relationship for the first time, or one moving forward in a way we've never experienced before. God, we are so grateful that Christ has come and has invited us into life with you in the present that leads to life eternal. So we ask that as we are physical people and physical places in this time where you have us, that you would give us wisdom for how we might repent well, so that we might be transformed, so that the world around us might be transformed as well. And it's, your, it's in the name of your Son, the source of our transformation, that we pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.